If you're black in America, you have higher odds of having a food allergy and lower odds of having the support and resources you need. In Allergic Living's Talking Food Allergy podcast, we've launched a series to hear from leading advocates about the realities of managing food allergies for black families, from bias in medical care to food insecurity, school preparedness, and more. My guests today are Thomas Silvera and Ondina Hawthorne Silvera, co-founders of the Elijah Olivey Foundation. Thomas and Andina started the foundation just days after the tragic November 2017 death of their younger son, Elijah. Elijah died of anaphylaxis after being fed his allergen at preschool. The Elijah Olivey Foundation focuses on food allergy and asthma education and training, especially in underserved communities. The Silveras worked tirelessly to get Elijah's law passed in New York State. It became law in the fall of 2019. The law requires child care centers in the state to have anaphylaxis training and emergency protocols. The couple is now pushing to have the law go national. And, as you'll hear, they have plans for many new resources, including a children's book. Thomas and Dina, it is such a pleasure to have you with me today on the Talking Food Allergy podcast. Well, I appreciate you reaching out to us and wanting to speak to us, and it's a pleasure. Thank you. It will be one year since Elijah's law was signed. Can you tell us the story behind this law that prompted you to action? In 2017 of November, we lost our youngest son through um, an incident that happened at a New York City school daycare center. That prompted my wife, Dina, to look further into legislation because there's something that was amiss. Even though our son had a 504 and IEP, upon her research, she was able to find a, a missing piece to the anaphylaxis policy and noticed that there wasn't any guidelines or protection for children in pre-K daycare and infancy child care. So with, even through her grief and our grief, we need to put something in place for the protection of young, for the babies. Elijah had several food allergies, including dairy, as you have just shared. They were aware of the allergy. What is your understanding of the food allergy training and procedures in daycare centers, not only the one that Elijah attended? So if I just wanted to enroll my child, they just gave me the application, you fill it out, you send your kid, and that was it. There was never, is there anything that we need to know about your child? Could be whether they have allergies, it could be whether they have asthma, it could be whether they have any other special needs that we need to be aware of. So based on the conversations that I've had with the daycares that I've ever been to, it was always me having to bring it up, which is informing them about everything that my son always needed. So to speak on that, training in, uh, for the educators in daycares and pre-Ks, they will give you the understanding that they do know what they're doing in terms of food out and mitigating risk, and they will give you everything there is to know for you to bring your child there. Okay, we know this because we know how to handle these situations. When it comes to having tragic incidents or incidentals that will happen in these facilities, the the repercussions are taking the responsibility for what had happened. It's lacking because if you're going to be working with children in any age, you need to provide for their safety. And I think there's one thing there's a miss because if you're feeding this to the community that you do understand how to you know, work with children or manage children with food allergies, asthma, or so be it, that you should be able to do that. And 
own up to it. You know, we leave our kids with these educators so they can provide them with the same amount of care as we would as food allergy parents. We did do our due diligence to make sure that the particular schools that we chose to send them to, both my son, Ela and Sebastian, that they could take care of them. So I just want to make that very clear. And I would ask certain questions based on the answers that I was given. It would then make me feel that they knew what they were doing. It's obvious now that they themselves weren't able to comply with their very their own stipulations and regulations and policies. And, and it's not until after what happened with our son, we realized there's a serious problem you did what any other parents of young children with food allergies would do, which is you raised the questions, you brought the issues to the forefront of the conversation, you listened to the answers at the time of enrollment, and you felt that you got the answers that you were hoping for, only to find out later, horrifically, that what they told you was not what was implemented. I think this gets to my next question. Daycare center staff looking nationwide are relatively poorly paid, have high turnover, often have lower levels of formal education. What impact does the prevalence of low-wage workers and high turnover have on a center's ability to maintain a high level of food allergy vigilance? The impact of that is very serious. With the high turnover, low paid, the educational aspects of the workers poses a big threat in the education sector when it comes with managing young children. If you don't understand the policies and guidelines that are put into place, and you're not reiterating that to every employee that comes in consistently, you're going to have incidents in many of them. I think with anyone in a in a high turnover place where there's stress, whether it's a medical facility or any place, you're going to have a lot of risk that's going to be taking place, especially in schools and daycare centers when they're working with young children. You're going to have these um, inconsistencies and you leave the children at risk. It, it really comes down to quality of care then, because say they stay, is the quality of your child care is happening? So to all childcare workers out there, I understand it is stressful, but this is the time where then you advocate also for yourself. Tragically, Elijah, as you mentioned, died of anaphylaxis due to the mistakes that were made at the daycare center. Within a few days of Elijah's death, you decided to move forward with legislation aimed at New York State daycares. What does Elijah's law specifically put in place as protections for children with food allergies? With Elijah's law, it focuses on three folds, which is access to everyday care being stocked with epinephrine auto ejectors, like education for like every adult that works within the daycares to know the signs and symptoms of an anaphylaxis and know how to treat the children in the event of emergency focuses on equity and making sure that like children in every school in every neighborhood, regardless of socioeconomic um, conditions, are treated fairly and given that same proper care. It's by implementing new uh, emergency guidelines and procedures for the educators to take immediate action in the event of emergency, understand to get trained in that space as well. I think the, the main thing is making sure, I know when it comes to this legislation with Elijah's Law, like we focus in, we, the main focus is to focus in the underserved community. And we want to bring this type of education 
there because it's a big miss in terms of the disparities in those neighborhoods that the education is missing whether it's from like the directors providing the education or being accessible to the schools. So that's one big thing with the Elijah's law that we want to make sure that we can continue to instill within the communities, not just in New York, but in every state that we go to. As you advocated for the law in New York state, what were the biggest obstacles that you encountered? And related to that, anything in that process that you expected to be hard that maybe wasn't as hard as you had thought? I thought that having the courage would be hard to see it through because we never did this before. So we knew that there was a bunch of challenges when we, we sat down for the first time and I brought to my husband what I thought that we had the opportunity or we felt that we could do. Courage was something that I struggled with and I was pleasantly surprised. It wasn't as hard or as challenging as I thought it was going to be. The way this was, was for us like coming up from our grief and deciding that Elijah's life would, would be used to change laws and policies. But I know one of the challenges that we face was our grief, most giving up because it was just too hard. And not the legislation, but knowing that our son's life was tragic and he did not die in vain. Do you think that race played a role in how your story was received by legislators in Albany African-Americans are in the food allergy community. We're not communicated to. When we stepped into this space, I definitely felt because we are a Black family, aw, this happened. And because we're the one that I guess you can say, unfortunately, had a lot of attention. Now we have been exposed into this space that has always been there in the food allergy community. When... African-Americans and ethnic people has been plagued with food allergies and other health issues like everybody else. There's not a lot of visibility of us, right? So when we stepped into creating this law and, and having more visibility, it was a little awkward at first because I wasn't really 100% sure if they was taking us seriously because there hasn't been a voice like ours in this space. We've been to a lot of events. We have not seen a lot of us there. So in good and in not so great ways, race did play a huge part in our push for everything and just focusing on the, the narrative and what actually matters, which is protection for all children, period. There were times where a question or types of questions that would be posed like, who are you guys serving? Is this for everybody or is it just for your community, right? Blanket way of saying, is it only for the black people that you're serving or is it gonna provide and support everybody? And so there were times where I felt like that question was either asked to see if they would support us if, well, if we are not supporting everyone and we just wanted to focus on the black community, we may not have gotten this support. We wouldn't be pushing this law to go federal if it was just for our community. Prior to Elijah's death and your decision as a couple and a family to get involved with advocacy, did you feel that the food allergy organized community, such as it is, national, local support groups, online forums, all of these play a role. Did you feel that they were welcoming to families of color or did no. you? No. Can you tell me a little bit about how you felt? When you see a family like ours, we lost our son tragically and everything. The momentum 
and the force that we put into this was not foreseen to where we are today. Us as a, a Black family, we're, we have a food allergy organization, Black business. Before Ela passed, before all this happened, we were struggling alone with ourselves and, you know, looking for information, who we can talk to in our communities. And we were thinking about doing something like this anyway in our community. The school that I sent my son to, originally the last conversation, and I don't think I said this, but the last conversation I had with one of the, the staff members that were there, I said other parents can learn a little bit more about food allergies and asthma. And I would love to have like a workshop or an event here and maybe there are other parents. So this was something that we were going to do anyway. There was nothing in our community where no one was talking to us. We had to go from one daycare to another daycare and we just started seeing a trend where I wasn't thinking about a nonprofit. We weren't, we weren't thinking about fundraising. These were things that we were going to bootstrap on our own anyway, because I wanted to make sure that not only are my children getting the best care when they're going to these daycare and early child care centers, but I also want to boost the confidence of parents where they felt like, oh, okay, I didn't know anything about this. Well, I didn't know either. And I'm learning just like you. So let's learn together. So when my son passed away, it just lit that fire for me and for us as a family to just go ahead and just throw caution to the wind because what else do we have to lose? I did not know until just now that you had thought about this education work early on. It doesn't surprise me because you both have such incredible focus and community-mindedness in the way that you've approached all of the successes with Elijah's Law and the establishment of the foundation. You established a foundation in memory of dear Elijah. What is the foundation's mission? The mission of the foundation is a commitment to educating the educators and those who, who work with young children by providing them with the necessary resources, the necessary education, and the awareness, not just to people who have food allergies, but to all those who don't. We've been moving this foundation on our own since literally like right after everything that had happened with our son. And that's why we're in-person training organization because we want to make sure when we're there physically that we're training them physically so they can be able to retain the information a lot better opposed to viewing it via webinar. The physicalness of understanding and having your hands accessible to the tools or the epinephrine and everything, you're able to retain the information better. Also a part of our mission is to ensure that we provide equitable resources along with the in-person training, the support, the consistency. A parent drops their child off. They will have the ability to be able to feel confident no matter what's going on in that building, that their people in there are intentional and capable to make sure that they can take care of that child just like the parent would, or if not even better, and that makes my heart smile. And that's why we, we want the equity for all. Our main focus is in the underserved community because we know the disparities are so heavy in those communities. The resources are lacking. The, the public health is lacking. Without foundation, we, we, that's why we're trying to raise money so we can be able to provide resources to the underserved community and give them that accessible care that they needed whether it's for auto injectors like we're our foundation we have a medical provider that can you know we go into daycare centers we train them they don't have epinephrine we can provide them with the epinephrine 
by writing them a prescription. We are working with an asthma company, if a family that needs a nebulizer to travel with because the nebulizers are bulky, we will have the funding to provide to that family to have a nebulizer to take with them and travel with. Those are just the beginning stages of what we want to do. This is our life work 24-7. And I change the directory of my, my education in order to work and move in that direction that I'm working in health education and moving forward into public health because the disparities are there and we need to make a change, not just yesterday, but like now. What you're talking about is grand systemic change. And as we talk as a country about what it means for systems and infrastructures to be so imbued with racism that we have taken for granted that there are going to be some institutions that are better resourced and others that are not. But that's not right. And it has been accepted as the status quo. Unfortunately, the opportunities to access education, quality health care, experimental treatment, and as you say, the hardware you need to manage a chronic illness. There, there's so much inherent friction and discrepancy that so many people, and I'll say so many white-run institutions, just take as the status quo. What you're doing is saying we want to meet the real-time needs of people today, epinephrine, training, nebulizers, but we're not going to stop there. Yes, I'm glad you said that because I always give this analogy. If When fighting for equality and you say, okay, well, we all have equal needs, and then you are providing so-called equal resources, if I am thirsty and you are thirsty and you're equally saying that we both are holding a glass, so that's true. Now we're both thirsty. You want to give us water. Someone pours into your glass a glass full of water and mine's not even half. That's equal because we both have water and a cup. Equity is the amount of water in the cup. And I think a lot of people fail to understand the difference between equality and equity. I've been stressing this from day one about focusing on the framework to the communities that we know that even though the data is there, there needs to be a more in-depth research in the communities that no one is really going into the communities to see the data because there's a lot that's not being registered. Whatever statistical data that is presented, it's still a miss because the numbers are a lot higher than what we're seeing. There are a lot of people in the underserved communities that don't want to go into these medical spaces or clinics who are suffering with food allergies and asthma because one, they don't have the finance to they don't trust the doctors that are in the community. And, and three, it's we can handle it on our own because of everything that I just mentioned. It poses a big threat to the communities when we talk about cultural sensitivities. Because if you're working in the communities, in the medical sector or in allergies and everything, you need to understand the community for what they are and have people change the environment of their community to understand the culture. Because you can't have someone who is Caucasian come into the space and think that they understand the Black community, the Hispanic community, the Indian community. When these families are there with these doctors, they don't trust them or they get dismissed very quickly because the doctor doesn't understand their language or they think that they're lying to receive care. And that is such a big conundrum of what's going on right now in society when you focus on systemic racism and, and the underserved population. 
we are seeing this play out with COVID-19, disproportionately high rate of death among African Americans. The media is quick to point out comorbidities, but the patient-doctor experience, to your point, coming into an ER and not being taken seriously, calling up your internist and being put on hold, and I would surmise that many folks with COVID-19 when they came with early symptoms, perhaps less severe symptoms, they were not taken seriously and they were sent away. What you're saying exactly echoes what Emily Brown and Elisa Word have both said on this podcast. Emily Brown saying, why should we give you our data for a data registry? When we have been exploited in the past, experiments were done on us. Information was forcibly taken from us. We didn't have agency. If you're gonna take our data, assure us that something will be done with that data that will benefit us. Don't use it to package a medication that we can't afford. Take us seriously as a constituency, as a patient population, as a consumer population. Those are powerful messages that you're sharing as well. You know, it's interesting enough that when they were speaking about health disparities before COVID had hit, no one was really talking about it. COVID-19 hit. We're talking about Milwaukee. That was a big prevalence when they had to address those issues, especially in the Black communities, that the numbers were astronomically growing. So now the CDC and you got the Surgeon General, everybody now coming to the forefront discussing how severe it is in these communities. It shouldn't have taken a pandemic to actually shine a spotlight on that. And now with everything that happened with George Floyd and, and hitting hard with the systemic racism, everything is coming to light. And it's unfortunate that these, like I said before, like what happened to my son, it shouldn't take a tragedy in order to create change. And it's upsetting that it has to come to these measures for change to happen. It's something that we look at every day and we shake our head. And I was like, when we started this foundation, there were a lot of chatter, the same thing in the legislation. There was a lot of chatter that didn't really believe that we were capable of moving in the direction that we are doing now. And we're doing it because we have we have that strong faith in our God, a strong faith in our son and the power and will. You take what we're going through and we just put out passion into it instead of just kind of like burying ourselves in our beds and you know focusing just on our grief. That's the same way everyone who starts an organization, they do it because something had happened that was tragic and they needed to see change, systemic change. And the same thing with us with our foundation, we need to see systemic change in these communities that are faced very highly with the scarcities and disparities when it comes to food allergy and asthma. Some parents would not be able to move forward from the situation that you experienced losing Elijah. They'd be paralyzed by grief. Where do you get that strength? Where do you continue to get the strength to do this work? Most people would describe paralyzed um, or paralytic as in just not doing anything. But I, I don't think I've said this publicly until now, but my soul is paralyzed. And it's taken some time my relationship with God. So I believe in God. I'm not, I, I don't have a specific religion, but I am spiritual and I have a relationship with God. And that relationship is what really kept me sane enough, encouraged enough, wise enough, believing in myself, pouring love back in. And it's a daily process. It's not something that I have mastered yet. I don't think I ever truly will. Every day I have to accept my new reality 
And so what allows us to keep, for me and my family, what allows us to keep going um, is our faith in God, truly. And the knowledge and knowing with my pain that at least I did something with it. I was going to do it anyway. It's just unfortunate it had to be this way. It makes me feel purposeful and encouraged that I'm with the people. I'm still in the community. And so when they see us and they see me, they know that it's um, intentional and that we really, really care. You know, and I say this all the time. It's like every time I talk about my son and, you know, I, I just think about the possibilities of what he could have been, what he would have been doing and the life that we would have had with him you know, that his brother Sebastian is like missing. They were like the bosom buddy, best friends, you know, like we think about these things about his smile his care, his love, you know, his, his way of conveying, make a hand, make a hug, make a kiss is what is the foundation of what we do because those words are his words of how, I think we as a people should just move forward in life. And that's how we as a foundation will continue providing the care. And like Dina said, it's intentional because we need to see the change, not just with us, but with everyone and provide the necessary needs to the community, even to our grief. You know, I always, <clears throat> you have Kubler-Ross talk about the five stages of grief. It's so weird, like, because you no one ever knows how the stages will work it's not from this to that the five stages i don't even know where we are now in terms of those stages but we're still dealing with grief we're still dealing with some anger we're still dealing with some you know we're rationalizing like you know the what ifs but we use the strength of Ela and our family and our strength in god to continue moving forward no matter what adversities we are faced with Thank you for sharing that. You've been successful at getting Elijah's law passed and enacted in New York. I know you've talked to legislators around the country. What comes next for you from a legislative and advocacy perspective? What else about your work would you like our listeners to know? What didn't I ask you about today that you'd like to share? We are talking on the legislation work. It is our sole mission to get Elijah's law at a federal level, but we're considering going past more recent circumstances, like to bring it federal, it takes a lot, but going state by state, talking with local elected officials and basically giving them the blueprint of how to apply Elijah's law to their, to their states. We are also want to advocate and work in other parts of legislations that will focus on food allergies, not just in, in childcare services. We're looking into epinephrine and restaurants and everything because we want to be able to put our voice along with everyone else so we can have a stronger platform to support everyone else on, you know, who are fighting. And one thing I can tell people when it comes to legislation, if you get a law passed, it doesn't stop there. The, your local elective officials... They've, they've done their job. Now it's up to you as a people, as an individual, to continue in 
having people understand that this law is in place. If it's mandated, you have to do the, the, the grassroots work and bring these to these, whether it's a restaurant or school or business, you have to, you have to get their attention on it because a law is in place. There are so many laws out there that nobody knows about, but they're there. But if you're not being intentional in bringing these laws to these places, they're not going to know it exists. I would like to share that. We are putting together and have started uh, the Elijah Echo Ambassador Program. And we are looking forward to uh, rolling that out soon, uh, especially during this time. Um, we are really excited about uh, creating a program that's uh, led by the voices of the babies, but with the full support of the staff, the teachers, and the parents. So this is a very holistic program. It's going to require everybody to be involved. And so that it does, it leaves no stone unturned, having the resources in a more digestible way. We have a children's book coming out. This was a beautiful way for us to bring to life something that we talked about when the boys were really little because they were so cute together and they did a lot of these very quirky things. I was talking about um, prior. I don't think we were going to write books uh, specifically focusing on food allergies, but the work that we're doing, we've decided to implement that into this story. And the way that it's uh, written, it's like a fairy tale, but it also rings true to the realities of what the children, you know, our children, when I say our children, I'm saying the world's children who suffers with food allergies and what it's like. It's going to be really, really fun for children and also fun for parents to read to their children. The um, LV Foundation Enjoy Life Foods, which is a big deal for our foundation on for us to be able to do a lot more things in the community, in the food allergy community. And we're so grateful for their, their care and their support for us. Um, it's been a long journey. We had a relationship with Enjoy Life from the very beginning and they've been amazing with us like through and through, uh, which you know I'm, I'm so grateful for. So that's just a couple of things that we have. There are a lot more <laughs> that we have that we will eventually start rolling out to uh, the community to see what we're doing. Um, we're not doing it just for our foundation. We're doing it for, for you, for the mom, the dads, the yeah. children, for everyone in the food allergy and asthma space. Mm -hmm. You know, we do these things because we want to make sure that we can provide you with the resources and care that is needed. Yeah. Well, Thomas and Dina Silvera, mm -hmm. I cannot thank you enough for being with us today on the Talking Food Allergy podcast. There is so much that you've already accomplished, a lot more ahead. I hope you'll come back and speak with us as your book is launched, as your additional programming is debuted. You are doing incredible work for the underserved communities, not only in New York, but across the country. And you are truly both incredible people, and it's a privilege to know you both. Thank you for being with us today. Thank you for having us. I really appreciate it. Um, I don't know if, if I, if you mind, I want to give some advice to the listeners if it, if that's okay. Absolutely. So the advice I want to give is like for food allergy parent, I advise do not worry about what other people may say or think about who you are or what you're doing. You know, you're not, you're not bothering anyone. You're not a helicopter parent. You are a parent who wants to make sure that your child's health and safety is protected when you drop them off and pick them up um, from their school. So 
that's something that we want to make sure that the, the listeners know. And you're doing a phenomenal job as a parent, more like a super a superhero in my book. So, you know, continue advocating, continue being vigilant and make sure Dina has said it best. Make sure your presence is felt. And that also includes for your family and friends. <laughs> I think that's a wonderful way to end. Uh, true to character, you're giving us advice even while you're leading as parents yourself. So thank you so much. My guests today were Thomas Silvera and Andina Hawthorne Silvera, co-founders of the Elijah Alavi Foundation and advocates for improving allergy safety and resources for low-income families managing food allergies. You can find out more about the foundation at Elijah Alavi, that's E-L-I-J-A-H-A-L-I-V-I, foundation.org. Please visit allergicliving.com and the microsite This Allergic Life. This is Jen Jobrak, founder of Food Allergy Pros, a national consulting firm. Thank you for listening.